3: Hello, hello. Thank you for coming. Welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre in London for the first Oh God, What Now? live of 2022. We're podcasting and live streaming this edition on Zoom. So hello wherever you are listening to this, whenever you are listening to this. Uh, But thanks most of all for people who've actually come physically with their bodies. Um, I'm Dorian Linsky. When we booked this show at the end of last year, we're expecting an evening of entertaining nonsense about Partygate. Um, but the cursed title of the podcast has struck again, and we find ourselves discussing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Or as Matthew Goodwin puts it, a unique opportunity to reboot Boris Johnson's premiership. <laughs> then, in part two, we'll be coming home to our comfort zone of talking about how awful Boris Johnson's premiership is, followed by some audience questions. Let's meet the panel. Uh, Roz Taylor edits the LSE COVID blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. Um, The worldwide keep it light, the worldwide COVID death toll has just passed six million. (laughs) But the world's attention is elsewhere. Um, What is, from your LSE desk, uh, the feeling about the state of play uh, with COVID? Could a new variant uh, change everything? Is there a sense that it's sort of not over-over, but over in the sense that we've been living with it for two years?
2: i are not going to hold you to it like you
3: don't have yeah, to I mean, we're, we're, it's we're not legally binding
2: we're certainly all exhausted by it i mean there's no there's no doubt about that i mean it's not over it's 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 going to become endemic it's the good news is that even if there is a new variant and there almost certainly will be at some point 98 i think 0.3% of us in england now have antibodies to covid either because we've had it or we've vaccinated or both so that is a good place to be as you move forward because if you're infected with a new variant of covid then you are very unlikely to get as ill as you might have become had you been infected in the first wave so that is is good I think there's yeah there will be new there will be new waves there's probably there's a bit of an uptick in cases now there's a bit of an uptick in hospitalizations and no one is quite sure why that is to be honest um, and there will undoubtedly be more waves and it isn't it isn't going to go away but I hope that we can get to a stage now where we start to be more comfortable with each other and we start to lose some of the fears that we've had over the last couple of years and in particular I remember I remember commissioning a piece May 2020 I think it was and someone someone wrote a philosopher whose name I unfortunately can't remember um, wrote we have to we have to be careful we have to be Careful not to be afraid of each other's bodies. And I thought, oh my God, that's a bit embarrassing. That's a bit Woodstock. It sounds a bit 1968. (laughs) But actually, she was incredibly right because we have become afraid of each other's bodies. We have, you know, we look askance at people if they haven't got masks on. We're worried. We worry about whether so and so is vaccinated or not. It would be, it will be great to move into a world where those things can matter less and we can start being in spaces like we are tonight together again.
3: Yeah. Yeah, this is better than Zoom. I gotta it say, it is
2: so much better. Than with
3: respect to the Zoom Corporation, this is better than Zoom. Um, Ian Dunt
1: <laughs>
3: is a man of action. <laughs> has the reflexes of a panther. He writes for the iPaper uh, and is working on a special project with me that will be revealed very oh, you soon. You old flirt. Yeah, we're getting uh, married. <laughs> special project. Um, So Ian, podcast fave Nigel Farage has chosen this week to launch his campaign for a referendum on net zero. Do you think the man with far too much time on his hands will succeed in making this uh, the new Brexit? Does it have enough culture war juice? Gamin juice.
1: Probably not, but I wouldn't completely rule it out. Like you look around Europe over the last few years... Lots of climate change issues have tended to split along. I mean, the Gilles Jeune is the obvious kind of example of that. Um, You have similar stuff in Netherlands around speed limits, weirdly enough. There's more quite poisonous debate in Germany around energy than we sort of recognize when we see German coverage here. It can, in lots of countries, split. And that is the reason that he's going for it. He thinks he can do it. But you look at the polling. The polling doesn't look that promising for him. There was a poll the statesman put out today. They didn't say much about what the questions were, which always makes you a bit nervous. But it suggested that, you know, people really did want to see climate change action taking place. So at the moment, it doesn't look very positive to him. But he is doing it for a reason, you know, which is that he's a venal, self-interested twat. But he generally, <laughs> he, he makes those appraisals, usually where there's something to right. work with. And I think in this case, that there could be something to work with. And when things get uglier, when Ukraine fades away a little bit, it's a few years in and people are getting £3,000 you know, energy bills. That could be more conducive environment for him to make that message.
3: Do you think that Farage, sort of NATO blaming, rumoured Russian connections, you know, have sort of got in the way of this? He's not had a great couple of weeks. Mm. Yeah, but I don't think
1: it's going to get in his way at all.
3: Mm. You fucking see it. Like you look at that
1: Daily Mail piece the other day, and everyone just being Nigel Farage, as if as if he hasn't just spent the last few weeks, you know, basically acting barely as a Putin apologist. I mean, kind of a fucking cheerleader for that scumbag. You know, he's been, do- he's been doing it for years. And the, the cowardice of, of the arguments, you know, this phrase he always has of you poke the Russian bear. He's been using that phrase for absolutely oh, fucking yeah, yeah. years. Don't poke the Russian bear. Well, what does that mean? You've just spent the last few years sort of telling us, oh, well, we've got to have our own sovereignty and make our own decisions. And when it comes to this fucking fascist over there, suddenly we've got to get down on our knees and do whatever he tells us to do. No, and he's been doing that, and no one seems to have given the remotest shit out here in the Daily Mail, and he will be back on fucking Question Time in the Today program, and he will talk about sovereignty and national determination, and no one will point out how obviously wrong-headed it is that he can make both of those statements at the same time.
3: I don't want to see him on TV unless he's literally poking a bear. (laughs) (laughs) Give us some entertainment. Uh, Next, please. Uh, Please welcome the live debut of Mini Rahman. Joined us in the Zoom years. Um, I mean, when you decided to leave your position at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, obviously you were not anticipating uh, the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since 1945. <laughs> um, do you think? I mean, obviously you've been talking about ref, refugees and, and, and campaigning for them from from a lot of different countries. Um, the political conversation is different this time. Um, why do you think that is?
4: First of all, I'm literally always expecting a crisis, especially when I'm booking a holiday. So that's the first thing to say. Um, I think that the narrative is really different this time. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think there's been quite a slow build-up of opposition to the way that refugees are treated over the last few years because the government has kind of simultaneously amped up their own hostile narrative. Pretty Patel isn't very popular even amongst tories and i think that that's had an effect so you have the afghan crisis and then Mm. that kind of sets the groundwork for okay there's something quite wrong with this system and then you have the ukrainian refugee crisis that's going on at the moment and it feels quite close to home for a lot of people it's very visible and suddenly there's all sorts of media narratives as well you know you've got the telegraph today doing a, a twitter live a spaces live thing where they're talking about like how terrible it is that Ukrainian refugees are being treated in this way, and two years ago that was quite mm. unfeasible to think that, that that this conversation would be going on. So I think there is um, a real different approach at the moment. Well,
3: there's an amazing poll that the number of refugees that we're currently letting in is a number supported by only two percent of the population. Yeah. So mm. literally, I mean, hopefully two percent that I will have will never meet. <laughs> but I mean, it's not. It's this is not pandering to the daily mail this is not pandering to leave voters this is like nobody supports the way the government is handling this
4: yeah absolutely i think it's i think it's just really obvious that there's something wrong you know you're seeing a a really big crisis you're seeing people suffering you're seeing them quite close to home you're seeing how the rest of the eu is treating them and and we're just kind of at stalemate doing Mm. very little and i think people are really fed up with that kind of approach from the government in general, um, you know they've always seemed to be one step behind everyone else. Yeah. And I think people are ready for a bit of a change.
3: Completing the panel from our sister podcasts, The Bunker and Doomsday Watch, it's former diplomat uh, and doomsday watcher, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi there. <laughs> On Monday, Russia uh, generously modified its demands and said it will stop military action if Ukraine surrenders Crimea, recognises the breakaway puppet states, and commits not to join any bloc, including the EU. Is there any kind of um, mix of those that you could imagine Ukraine agreeing to? Well, I think there's one thing on
0: that list that it's not outside the realms of possibility, you know, could be an option, which is the Crimea one. And, And before I go any further... I should reiterate that this is not me saying it was okay when Putin invaded Crimea in 2014. Obviously, it wasn't. Um, but Crimea, there is room for a debate. You know, Crimea was part of the Russian Federation until 54, and then it was transferred to Ukraine. Uh, there is uh, there is an argument that it's it's more anomalous. Um, but of course, it, you, there's, it's impossible to envisage a scenario where, for example, the way you might do it would be you'd have a a uh, referendum organized under international auspices or something, you know, with proper observers and all that. It's very hard to believe that Putin would, would, be, would, would agree to that because they've put so much on the, the fake referendum they held back in uh, 2014. So I think none of those things themselves are, are kind of worth taking seriously or in good faith. But what is interesting is, is it's, it was the first point where Russia said there, are term, it, there, there is a possibility we will end this, as a result of a negotiation. And they hadn't said that before, and that must be because they were not getting what they wanted on the field of battle.
3: Um, well, let's talk about that. Um, Firstly the latest developments, and then we'll each be uh, nominating the worst take so far from your favourite commentators. Um, Ian, the invasion has not been going to plan, but it is, it's sort of early days. But my feeling, I suppose, was that the more... Uh, The longer it goes on, the more brutal it is. The harder it is to understand what victory looks like for Putin. So do you understand what the end game is? That after you've been shelling people, they're not going to be that susceptible, presumably, to a a puppet government. Do Do you feel that he knows what he's going for?
1: I don't know what the fuck that guy knows about anything at this stage. Like he, he's a complete yeah. bafflement to me, and I'm not, and I haven't really read anyone put a coherent argument for what he he is, really whether he's even functionally sane at this point or not. I mean, I see the arguments on one side and another. I haven't read one that particularly convinces me in one direction. Certainly, like you see from the kind of information that we've had, that it seems that the really top levels of Russian government were as shocked. And kind of mortified at what was going on as almost anyone else which gives you some indication of just how small the information ecosystem is around him i would have thought and this is the best guess at this point predominantly optimistic but it is true we have to kind of say that in the south the russian advance has been much more effective than in the north especially around kiev where you know all of the ukrainian forces around kiev their logistics are better they're maintaining supply lines better it's not completely unthinkable that they would take Odessa and that you could link up with the East and you would end up with a territory that looks a lot like what we kind of thought maybe Putin was going for in the first place when he did this thing. Incidentally, as I'm saying all this shit, I keep on glancing at Arthur and making sure he's still nodding. Because if he starts (laughs) not nodding, I'm fucked. (laughs) And and so, you know, in that that scenario, you're like, well, maybe he would be able to live with that. But I have to say, even if you get there, right, even if you get to the point where they could take Kyiv, you're still able, you know, if, if, you're, if you're the Ukrainian government, you can still retreat to the West, where you've got that whole fucking long Polish border that you can just be supplied and supplied and supplied. And if you're Russia and you're trying to maintain against a sort of urban insurgency, while at the same time fighting an infinitely supplied Western force from the Ukrainian government, that in itself looks pretty fucking tough. So even in the best case scenario, it still looks pretty bleak for Putin, or at least much bleaker than it, than it looked on the day that he first invaded.
3: Well, it's worth saying, obviously, that in the weeks leading up to this, people, the reason a lot of people thought that it wouldn't happen, it was just bluff, was because it didn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense now that, yeah. that it's happening. Um, Roz, uh, Vladimir Zelensky has sort of acquired um, a sort of heroic status which is very unusual for any politician, apart from, obviously, the sympathy you would have for anybody in that situation. How has he being so successful as a representative, as a face? Because I think all political... You know, all political movements and countries in time of war, it's like a lot of time they do need that sort of ambassador to the world.
2: Yeah, I think there's two things going on. Uh, one of them is Zelensky himself, and he has been an actor, so he knows how to reach out to an audience, how to work with a screen, how to do that. The fact that he comes across as so kind of casual and he's unshaven. You know, I don't know how many days of stubble he's got now. <laughs> it's just, I can't imagine when, he, when he's next going to get a shave. But he, he, he's not, you know, he's not carrying a Kalashnikov and he's not looking military. He's looking like every man who is kind of trapped in Kiev. But, but the, because he looks like every man, he shows that everyone can resist the Russian invasion. And that's part of it. The other thing is just the fact that he has, he is able to broadcast to so many millions of people. I mean, in the past, past wars we've had, while people might have been able to do those videos, they wouldn't have been able to do them and actually have them watched on smartphones so quickly and you know, have, have such an impact, it wouldn't have been possible. And that's why he's been able to, to spread his message so far. Um, Arthur,
3: what do you think uh, as sort of an expert um, on this, what do you think is being um, missed or perhaps underreported or, or misunderstood so far? Um, people have obviously got their heads
0: around the fact that the Russians are not doing nearly as well as everyone expected. There's been quite a lot of focus on the Russian military and you know, these amazing uh, sort of Twitter threads about the tyres on the, the the trucks and how they're, you know, they're rubbish tyres and they get stuck in the mud. So, so I think people are, people are getting that. Where I think there is less, less understanding, it certainly hasn't been reported very widely, is actually the degree to which this rot seems to go all the way up. So, uh, for example, there was reporting the other night of a, there was a Russian general killed in action, which in itself is very unusual in any army. You know that, that doesn't happen very often. But the way in which it happened, it appears that the Ukrainian intelligence had found out where he was and got to him and knocked him out. And then the, the way they, they knew that the, that the operation had been successful was because they intercepted a Russian call from Russian intelligence back to their headquarters. And the reason it was intercepted was because they weren't using encrypted communications, which is extraordinary. And it's because their communications aren't working. So we, we for example, in the West, we, we, we think of the Russian intelligence services as sort of terrifying, ruthless, you know, the people who took the Novichok to Salisbury and, and you know, they'll do anything and, and there are no limits. Um, but actually, if you think about the Salisbury operation, they were ruthless and hideous, but they're quite incompetent. You know, they, they got found out quite quickly. And it, and it seems that this is actually the case in, there in Ukraine, that even the people right at the top, I'm not talking about the conscripts, you know, who haven't figured out they're even in Ukraine yet, uh, but actually, you know, the former KGB, the people that we're supposed to think of as sort of 10 foot tall, they don't really seem to know what's going on. And so that means that the rot in the system has gone all the way up to the top. So I think that's one thing. And then the other thing is just to to remind ourselves, you quite rightly said that it seemed that the Russian leadership were as surprised as everyone else. But the people that weren't surprised, to give them credit, were the White House, clearly the CIA, and I think our intelligence services here. So that means that, they probably still know exactly what's going on. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I know how that is being done, but they must know that, and a lot of that must be reaching the Ukrainians. And that, I think, is why the Ukrainians are doing so well. They, they know what the Russians are doing next.
3: It is quite bizarre that we've just come from within a few months from uh, you know, the, the, the departure from Afghanistan, where just seen the American intelligence didn't know anything and had no idea the Taliban were going to sweep in, to something where... For, for weeks in advance, they were going, they're going to invade, they're going to invade. And loads of people were saying, oh, bullshit, you're just kind of drumming, you know, sabre-rattling. And it was entirely right. So I just... I, it's sort of weird that they can go from what appears like gross incompetence to being entirely on it.
0: Yeah, and I think part of this is, is obviously to do with sort of spheres of expertise. Mm. You know, clearly, for, for literally for decades, the CIA has been focused on Russia and so have intelligence services here. Um, and... They have, no doubt, clearly built up a, a, a deep reservoir of, of knowledge. But I think what's very unusual, and, and actually transformational is the way that they were public with this information. Now, of course, we were... I say we. I was certainly <laughs> cynical. I think most people were. You know, there was all the legacy of WMD in Iraq, the Afghan thing that you have just talked about. Um, and some of the stuff was a bit off-beam. You know, the, the, the Liz Trust releasing a thing on a Saturday night to hit the Sunday papers back in... I think it was in January... That doesn't seem to have had much to stand it up. Uh, But in general, Mm. clearly, you know, deeply, uh, deeply impressive kind of penetration. And I wonder whether among the many things giving Putin sleepless nights is the knowledge that somehow, you know, his plans are are known about in advance.
3: Um, Minnie, Britain's response to refugees, as we mentioned, has been pretty uh, pathetic, which is what seems like incredibly callous. Bureaucracy and ridiculous excuses that, you know, they're worried that some Russian agents might sneak in as if they didn't arrive in Salisbury on a tourist visa to do some <laughs> poisoning. Um, what, I mean, given what other countries in Europe are doing, is it, is it quite, because obviously ministers will go, well, it's very complicated, it's very complicated. Is it complicated? Or are there things that you could do quite quickly that maybe the EU are doing that would you know, just sort of get a lot more people out.
4: Yeah, I think you have to look at this in the context of the Nationality and Borders Bill and the last few years of, like, policy and rhetoric that has come from the government. You know, they've spent a lot of time basically saying that they don't want refugees to come into this country. Um, And what they're trying to do with the Ukrainian crisis at the moment is fit in a very fast, urgent response into a system that is absolutely dysfunctional, absolutely Mm. bureaucratic, is designed to be slow and designed to stop people from being able to access it. And they're trying to kind of mesh these two things together and expecting it to work. And actually, all of the proposals that they've put forward at the minute for how they're going to allow Ukrainian refugees into the country, they're all still focused on propping up the same asylum system. So, you know, you've got, like, the the global... The the sponsorship route that they're saying is going to be amazing and is going to... You know, there's no cap on it and it's going to allow loads of people into the country. You know, that route has been trialled before. It's incredibly bureaucratic. It it, It relies on you kind of accessing a visa system and getting to the UK, it puts a load of pressure on local authorities. It was trialled in something like 2016 and only let in like 500 people. So that's not going to work. What they need to do is kind of accept that this system is broken and failing. It doesn't work in a slow crisis. It doesn't work in a fast crisis. Who is it working for in general? And they need to just basically allow people to enter the UK and have their claims heard without like a ridiculous... Evidence threshold and loads of burden and responsibility on that, and that could be done in numerous ways. And actually, you could be quite, quite like quite creative about how you do that. But the political will still isn't there, and that's the, the biggest problem.
3: What struck me was I think the new Spectator cover by Morton Moreland, you know, who's a very good cartoonist, but still, it's the Spectator, and it's got all these people from European countries smiling and holding up welcome signs because Spectator loves the EU normally. And then Pretty Patel holding up this incredibly long list, like incredibly long form to fill out. And I thought, okay, that's a very good cartoon because it sums it up. But also, bloody hell, the spectator is just going, why is there so much bureaucracy for refugees?
4: Yeah, it is absolutely amazing. You know, you've got stories of people who have gotten all the way to France and are being bounced back to another embassy and told they need to go and do their biometrics somewhere else, and they've got to... Someone on the news this morning was saying that he'd been told to go back to Kiev and apply from Kiev, which is just like the most ridiculous thing ever. And the, the most important thing to say is, you know, what Ukrainian refugees are experiencing right now is what every other refugee has experienced for years, and it's I don't know, there's just some public acceptance now that this system is broken, and I hope that means that there will be some transformation.
3: Ian, um, in the last few weeks, Russia's basically been cut off from the world at large. You've got companies like Apple, Netflix, McDonald's, Visa, Boeing, Starbucks, all suspending business there. The ruble is so basically dead as a currency. The stock exchange is literally too scared to open, <laughs> which I didn't even think that was a thing you could do, <laughs> which is just like, it's not... Maybe if we don't open, it's like like when a child puts their hands in front of their eyes and just like, well, you can't see me now. (laughs) Like, what has happened? I mean, I know, have we ever seen anything like this? Like, what is happening to the Russian economy? Um, It's being
1: pulverized uh, into nothingness. The thing that remains is energy. But for everything else, I mean, you've basically taken an economy that has almost nothing but energy and a stacked-up set of foreign currency reserves, and you've frozen them. And that is going to send your currency into the floor. It's going to send inflation into the sky, and that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean, the ruble is down 30% on the beginning of the invasion. I mean, it's down 10% on where it was on fucking Friday, okay? like It is falling on its arse. You can respond to a certain extent. I mean, they are in the kind of classic way that an authoritarian state would be. You're gonna introduce capital controls. You're gonna try and close down any kind of foreign currency going to people within the country or leaving the country in any way. But it it won't save them. And now, like the real fucking warning signs for them is people are talking about energy. And that's that's the lifeline part. And that is just like a shocking state of affairs. And one that... I mean, the thing is it can only go so far, right? Because it's easy. I mean, yesterday the Americans come out and they're like cutting off (coughs) oil and gas. Yeah. Brits come out and go cutting off oil. Well, it's just like, so, well, fucking the Americans don't really take any oil and gas, really, from Russia. and Britain, very, very little. It's Europe that is the problem. Realistically, Europe is the problem. And Europe has done as much as I think it possibly could have yesterday. In the crowd. In the crowd. <laughs> <of> the crowd.
3: <laughs> I, I, I don't want to hear Europe's <laughs> the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Europe's done That's nothing why wrong. I to leave the European Union.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, this may not go down too well. It doesn't go down too well with me. I mean, but the thing is, you know, for ages... People would just look at Germany and just be like, what are you fucking doing, man? you've got to stop this. Like, you know, you are relying on this slap-faced cunt who's gonna try and destroy you anytime he can. You know, you know, we knew it, and it was a warning for a long time, and it wasn't dealt with. Since the invasion happened, I think Germany's been much, much stronger. The Nord Stream 2 decision was really strong, it was yeah. really brave. The decision yesterday on two-thirds reduction in gas by the end of the year is eye-watering target. It might not be we're going to do it today, but it's still eye-watering tough stuff. And I've got to tell you, you look at energy globally, and it's really hard to see how you do it. It's really, really hard. It's just renewables just aren't there yet. That's the, the horrible truth. We can talk about it as much as we want. We can push funding into it. We must. But the truth is they're not quite there yet. And you can only diversify so much. You can only do so much with liquid gas with the market where it is. It's one of those questions. I spent fucking two days phoning up energy experts going, so what's the answer on the energy thing? And they're just like, I don't know how to break this to you, dude, but it's fucking awful. And it is. It remains a real genuine problem.
3: Well, Ross, what do you think are the implications maybe long term for energy policy and the climate? Because, you know, obviously other countries that supply oil are not a great bunch of lads either <laughs> and it does seem that for security reasons you really might not want to be reliant on them do you see this as a sort of that that it will be causing a sort of widespread rethink maybe that involves nuclear power I know which Germany sort of abandoned and maybe is wishing it hadn't um, you know, does that mean far more investment in, in renewables? Like, I don't know whether this is sort of like a, a wake-up
2: call in that sense. Yeah, yeah, it's totally a wake-up call. I, the, no, I mean, nobody wants to nobody wants to rely on Saudi Arabia and Gulf oil states for their oil. But, I mean, that's what we're going to be doing in the short term because we haven't really got an alternative if we're going to cut down on our oil from Putin. There's a bit we can take from the US and Canada, but not, not a huge amount. So really, you've just got to change the way this country thinks completely about energy. And unfortunately, in this country we have the same approach to renewable energy uh, as we tend to have to housing development, which is that it's a great thing, but we don't actually want it near us, because that's, that's not nice. I was reading uh, recently about plans for an enormous solar farm in Suffolk, because it's quite sunny in Suffolk, and it's a good place to have a solar farm. And there's a decent rationale for having it there. The locals are furious, furious at the idea of a solar farm. And, uh, you know, there were the usual photographs of people next to a tree that might be cut down if the solar farm is built, which obviously isn't a good thing. But the problem is that the whole planning system in this country gives an awful lot of power to local authorities, and they will quash that if they can. So, you have to overcome that. And Would this it be is why, wrong to
3: criminalize NIMBYism?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is why I find it so bizarre that the to- lots of Tories are now going after fracking. People hate fracking. If there's anything they hate more than renewables and housing development, it's fracking. You know, <laughs> it, is, it is seriously unpopular for very good reasons, and yet they somehow think that it's a good thing and it will make us energy independent. You know, the only way I can see to. Is, is a massive expansion in, in wind, which we're already really strong in in Britain. We are world leaders in wind. Could I just pause while we, <laughs> while we talk about... Well, we, we're considered. What a, what a great thing that is. It's about is. time we, you
3: started talking up Britain.
2: We are. I'm, talking, I'm just talking up the country, Dorian, yeah. because frankly I don't think we do enough of that in, yeah. this, po- in this podcast. <laughs> we, we are world leader, leaders in offshore wind. And we need to do even more in that. And we also need to build some, uh, some nuclear power stations, which people won't like either. But, hey, we just we will have to.
3: Um, Arthur, turning to Russia, um, as well as being abandoned by these companies, Russia itself has blocked Facebook and Twitter and so on while shutting down independent media and imposing a 15-year sentence on anyone who contravenes Kremlin propaganda about the invasion, um, which Lionel Shriver might be surprised to learn is worse than in Britain. It's worse <laughs> than cancel culture. Um, For a long time, it's been called, like, authoritarian, a mixed democracy, other euphemisms. At what point does it become an autocracy? And you just go, oh, okay, the post-Soviet era has really been rolled back. Because I know there was some talk of the symbolism of McDonald's, the first one opened in 1990. It was a symbol of the opening up. And obviously, Putin's been closing it down for some time. But, I mean, is this something to kind of... Because I am thinking not every Russian is supporting this. So is it going to push Russia into like, effectively a dictatorship?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely there now, and when, when did we cross that line is, is, is the hard question to answer. I think, um, of course, these, these things are on a, on a sliding scale, aren't they? And, and the, um, th- there are places which claim to have political parties and elections, but everybody knows they're a dictatorship. And at a certain time... Uh, even under Putin, you you never thought Putin would lose an election, but you thought that there was there was a sort of vague connection between the number of votes cast and and the final outcome, the, a vague connection. Whereas now it's over. But let's not forget, Navalny is in prison. You know, Navalny was poisoned. They tried to kill him. Uh, he 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 didn't die to their their chagrin, but but he's in prison anyway. Um, so yeah, I I think it it the period of of Russia's sort of Um, experiment with democracy is definitely over. But it's worth saying that I've heard people who've got long enough memories, uh, Russians, say that they think this is worse than the Soviet period. Um, Possibly because it is... The framework is not the party and the structure and the extraordinary sort of power of the Russian Communist Party, or the the Soviet Mm. Communist Party. The framework is Putin and a very tiny group around him.
3: And it's not even pretending... To, i don't i 'm not going to say what you like about Stalinism, but I mean there, <laughs> there was this initial set of the, these are principles principles which they betrayed or principles that they used in order to commit appalling crimes, but there was at least a sense of like well we 're promising something even if we 're breaking the promise
0: yeah and, and I suppose you know one of the, the the signature kind of element of the Putin era is the existence of these billionaires, all of whom choose to lead their lives educate their children and sort of you know pursue their interests outside Russia well, well what does that tell us I well, mean the
3: f- yeah the funniest bit the funniest news story is when it's like Eaton is worried about <laughs> sanctions yeah it's like probably and says something about Eton I think we it? should
0: all you know just spare a thought for Eton at this difficult time. we're gonna have a collection for Eaton yeah. later
3: um Minnie quick one to end um there is a significant progressive minority in Russia who oppose the war, have strong ties to the West. You know, I've met people like that when I've, I've, I've been on trips to Russia. And their lives are collapsing in terms of, like, their, you know, obviously, the, some free speech issues, also the economy. Not easy to leave. Some will want to leave. Do you think the issue of Russian refugees is going to come up? And do you think that there's going to be a lot more hostility and an unwillingness to discriminate between people who support Putin and people who are desperate to get away from him?
4: Yeah, I think it's a very real possibility, especially if you think about what's going on with Russia in terms of, you know, criminalisation of people who protest and who say anything against Putin and the government. And, you know, the the UN definition of refugee includes political persecution. So they would have a legitimate right to seek asylum in any country um, and when it comes to asylum cases you have to look at things on a case-by-case basis there is you cannot blanket say that country there cannot be asylum cases from that country so you would you every asylum case has to go on a case-by-case basis so it could very well happen and I think it's what's probably more important than that is if it does happen and if it does happen in the UK there's a we, I hate talking about integration because I, I don't think that refugees necessarily are the ones who are responsible for integration. But there are some really clear narratives coming about about Russians and who they are, and you know what that would mean for them if mm. they came into the UK is really important because they would still be refugees. They would have opposed a government and. We have to think about the narratives and how they're treated when they're here, and the government would have to put a very concerted effort in in terms of its integration policies to make sure that they're protected.
3: Um, and before the break, we are going to rattle through some of the mind-bogglingly bad takes from Western commentators left, right and centre. From people who are the principle, if you haven't got anything useful to say, say it for money. <laughs> um, Roz, uh, what's the worst thing you've read?
2: Well, it has to be that uh, Ukraine is Johnson's Falklands, I think. Um, this, I think this was anonymously briefed to various journalists at weekend, and I can understand why the briefing was anonymous, because <laughs> who would, who would want to be publicly associated with that? However, it, it, it amazes me. I mean, the other day, Rory Stewart, who I normally respect, I uh, do respect, was saying that while Johnson was a terrible man and a terrible PM, he had actually been quite decent okay, in this crisis. I don't get this at all. He's been absolutely appalling. I don't understand this narrative that Johnson has somehow aced the Ukrainian war, revolting as that whole concept is. (laughs) I mean, he has completely... There has been no clarity whatsoever on refugees. He has let Priti Patel basically just confuse us all with her absence of a decent refugee policy. He's now brought in a new refugee minister because, apparently, that's what he needs to do to get anything done, who is not even in the Commons, is not even in the Lords, has to be appointed to the Lords because he's a former Tory MP who was kicked out in 2019. And he needs this guy to come in and sort out the refugee problem, because such is the lack of talent in his cabinet so and, and in his party. So there's that. He's talking absolute rot yesterday about how easy it would be for Europe to wean itself off Russian oil and gas. Uh, it's for, for some people, it will be easier than others, but it would just be easy apparently and then there's the total
4: in, <sighs> the total
2: inability to tackle Russian oligarchs properly mm. and not only has he given them a big big window in which to move their funds out of Britain, but he 's also blamed um, a, a law that the conservatives themselves brought in <laughs> three years ago, which a crossbench peer, Lord Panic, put some amendments on, and he's blaming Lord Panic now for putting in these amendments, which apparently makes it more difficult for us to punish these Russian oligarchs. It is, it is, it is a story and of incompetence. I forgot and about
3: Lord Panic. Only <laughs> Lord, he sounds like a kind of early 90s rapper.
2: But I, I don't... Yeah. <laughs> the idea that this is Johnson's Falklands is... is oh.
3: It's also nothing like the Falklands. <laughs> I mean, just on a military... Like, we're not fighting a war. The, so that's one thing. The
2: idea that he has anything in common with the Falklands is
4: deeply, deeply offensive. Um, you stop me now before I just Minnie. go to...
3: <laughs> <laughs> Minnie, your worst take.
4: Uh, it's got to be uh, Ben Shapiro. I mean, every take that he has is fucking terrible. But he tweeted something the other day. I'm just going to read it. Russia and China are focused on expanding their spheres of influence via aggressive action. The West is focused on expanding its national debt and exploding the gender binary exploding the gender binary. I, I was reading that, and I was like, what the fuck does that even mean? But also, is he legitimately saying that spending on public services and, like, protecting the rights of minoritized groups is the reason that Putin has been able to invade Ukraine? Oh. Oh.
3: <laughs> well, there's, uh, I want to I add, add one here, because mine was going to be from Matthew Saeed in The Times. I don't want to... Uh, he clickbaited his own piece, so it's his own fault. Um, <laughs> in his own tweet... He read, while Xi Jinping was resetting the world order through his Belt and Road Initiative and Putin was recreating the Russian Empire by annexing Georgia and Crimea, we were, what were we doing? We were arguing over whether the word curry amounts to cultural appropriation. (laughs) Now, we weren't. (laughs) One. Two. Food bloggers did not annex Georgia and Crimea. (laughs) So I think probably when they say we, it's sort of like, there's probably like different people.
4: <laughs> I don't know. I don't and know it's who sort of mad from.
3: that they've just been like, the, the, yeah, the, the sort of, the, the woke blaming. And it's not, and uh, three, um, <laughs> Putin is like famously like super homophobic and really into culture wars and spends quite a lot of time pursuing these non-military vindictive sort of cultural issues. So those two guys should, should get together.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they've ever met.
3: Met over a curry. <laughs> Which they enjoyed with no reservations at all. Um, Arthur. Uh,
0: well, it's a crowded field, obviously. Um, but I thought uh, the, the confusingly named James Cleverly, who... I, who, <laughs> who uh, um, he's a minister... I don't know, a minister for something, right? A minister for going on the radio. Um, <laughs> and this was on, on the debate around uh, Lord Siberia, which of course sounds like a character from a pantomime, but it is a real person, Yevgeny Lebedev, who is, you know, the owner of the Evening Stand and one or two other things. Uh, and and Boris Johnson overrode the advice of MI six to make him a lord. And uh, and Mr. Lord Siberia, give him his appropriate respect. Uh, his father was a KGB officer posted in London. Literally, his job was to spy on Britain. Um, and 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 is you know is is a, owns a bank. He's a big big league oligarch. And um, and and an interviewer was said to to cleverly. Um, you know this guy's father is a, was a KGB officer. And cleverly says, yeah, and my father was a chartered surveyor. <laughs> and it's just so mysterious that he thought that 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 clear you know is it but no one thinks chartered surveyors go around assassinating people Uh, I'm not aware that um, uh, James Cleverley and his father collectively have tried to influence British politicians
3: by buying up newspapers I mean uh, there are so many there are so many so many problems with that yeah Uh, interestingly Lord Siberia and Lord Panic made a record together in 1991 (laughs) Uh, where it's like, Lord Siberia causing mass hysteria, Lord Panic, his rhymes are manic. It's very good. Um, Ian. That
2: is very good. <laughs> Just a little
3: freestyle, like an open, mi- like an eight-mile situation. <laughs> um, Ian, let's wrap up with your bad take.
2: Yeah, I
1: wrote this down, because I know you're thinking I'm going to pick sort of Chris Williamson or George Galloway. I fucking should have picked George Galloway. Um... <laughs> But I actually, I've gone for a woman who I do not know called Anna Lynn McCord, who started in a program that I do not know called 90210. <laughs> uh, and she came out on the first day of the... I'm going to read out what she said. And bear in mind that I had to fucking listen to this again so I could write it down, so I fucking go through pain for you people. <laughs> this is what she said. She said this to video. Dear President Vladimir Putin, I'm so sorry that I was not your mother. If I was your mother, I would have, you would have been so loved, held in the arms of joyous light. Never would this story's plight... She says it like she's speaking poetry. It's a fucking abomination. The world unfurled before our eyes, a pure demise of nations sitting peaceful under a night sky. If I was your mother, the world would have been worn. Notice how it's all ultimately fucking about her, right? Like, it's not even, like, about Ukraine. Um, so much... So much laughter and joy. I can't imagine the stain, the soul stealing pain. Fucking alliteration. I fucking hate. If you're not Stan Lee, just fuck off. (laughs) The soul stealing pain that the little boy must have seen. And the formulation of thought quickly taught that you lived in a cruel, unjust world. Wow. So, where he's. No, don't
3: clap! (laughs) Unclap, <laughs> negate that clap. Yeah. So in a way, he is the victim.
1: He is the victim of, of a cruel parenting. and unjust world. And if only he'd had a better mother, like her, whoever the fuck she is, <laughs> everything would have
3: been fine. Um, but I'm glad you did mention uh, Chris Williamson there, who has been on such a blue streak oh, of, of horror. That's of- not even Putin apologism
1: either, is it? That's just like, Vladimir, please, can I come fight for you? Like he is fucking.
3: He was off full on. He was like, he got the anti-Semitism market, then the <laughs> Assad market. Now he's into the Putin market. Now he's on press TV. <laughs> and it's just like, didn't you just like run the council in Derby? <laughs> when you like a bit of a, a Blairite? Just phenomenal scenes uh, on the hard left there. Um, okay, brilliant. So we could talk about more bad takes, but we would be here all night, um, and you're going to need a break. Uh, we'll be back in about fifteen minutes uh, to talk about our uh, useless prime minister. Uh, have a drink. We'll see you then. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for not leaving. Um, <laughs> A few weeks ago, we seriously discussed whether this show would be a a groovy funeral party for Boris Johnson's political career. But not so. Uh, His personal ratings have soared to a dizzying minus 45. (laughs) And the backbench rebellion is on ice. But is this just a temporary reprieve for the man who's lost his popular touch? Um, Ian, scandals come and go, um, but perception shifts are forever. Do you think that circumstances have saved Johnson, or is he still in trouble down the line for all kinds of, you know, more long-term reasons.
1: Look, it, the, the polling is improving for him a bit um, because it's an international issue. You get to have, like, more of a leadership role in it. There's a slight rally right around the flag effect. I mean, if that still pertains in two years' time, we've got much bigger problems to worry about than Boris Johnson, you know, because that means that basically we're in World War III time now. Um, so that probably won't be the case. The repercussions of the war um, in terms of energy prices, in terms of general inflation, I think will make things in this country worse than they already were economically, and they're already going to be very, very brutal indeed. And the fundamental thing remains the same, which is that very painful period for us where it was just, look at this guy, look at this guy who is lying through his fucking teeth at you every day, every second, and for some reason people aren't spotting it, well, they spotted it now. Okay, and once you lose that sheen, and you know, no matter how much things change in the cycle, he can't really go back into that personality all over again. he doesn't get to slot back into that role again. so yeah this stuff will fade away, and we will go back to domestic politics in some capacity, possibly with Ukraine murderously, horribly in the background. and when that happens, he is still going to be damaged good so I, I wouldn't fret too much and also it's kind of unseemly for us to
3: sure. worry
1: too much about it at this you know sort of stage. I'm just
3: wondering whether that will take the form of you know, going into an election still very damaged in, in terms of, like, if there would be a notorious rebellion? Because a lot of the people who were unhappy with him would still be unhappy, but we've seen, you know, in previous, in previous times, say, Labour with Corbyn or whatever, sometimes these moments happen, and everything moves very, very fast and can be quite sort of chaotic, and then those moments go, and then nothing happens. We've seen it with attempts to get rid of all kinds of PMs. So do you think there'll be another actual rebellion and letters to the 1922 committee or do you think that there would have to be a, a really serious trigger for that?
1: Yeah no, the only trigger is the local elections we've known this for ages right I mean right. You, you, we hit the local elections if it's catastrophic probably that will happen and if it isn't I don't think that it will I mean whether that is going to happen in that capacity will to a slight extent come down to the police response but I think more importantly it will come down to just the, this bare superficial thing of what is the news agenda at the time. You know, and if it's an emergency, people are not going to feel like, you know, like getting rid of him. They're, they're just not. So I think all of that stuff at the moment is kind of yeah. on the back burner.
3: Um, Minnie, Arthur mentioned it earlier. Can you explain the scandal around giving uh, Lebedev a peerage, even though intelligence agencies opposed it?
4: Yeah. So Johnson and Lebedev, they've been friends for a really, really long time. Their relationship goes all the way back to when he was London mayor. So Lebedev, son of a Russian billionaire who owns the Evening Standard. The Standard was obviously very supportive of Boris Johnson's election campaign in 2012. Um, you know, they're such good friends that, you know, March 19th, 2020, Johnson was actually spotted going into his house on the same day that he was telling the public to stay indoors during COVID. You know, that they're, they're, they're absolute besties. Um, and this is where it kind of gets complicated, because shortly after Johnson was spotted going into his house, he a nomination forward for Lebedev to be a peer and the House of Lords appointment committee basically raised this committee also by the way has no official veto power what they can do is basically look at a nomination for a peerage and say "Mm, actually can you try again with this person Mm. maybe put someone else forward they're not they're not a good candidate. And they had massive concerns about Lebedev because his father was a a KGB, um, worked with the KGB in London and obviously hasn't done that for many years. So the nomination was withdrawn, then it was put back again and the second time it was put back there was suddenly new evidence that suggested that You know, he was low risk. Now, the question is is whether Boris Johnson has interfered in that process to get his friend, who obviously has political influence, into the House of Lords. Uh, He's obviously denying that. The second question there is about how seriously Boris Johnson takes Russian interference in British politics. So it may be that he doesn't have... um, You know, he's not a high risk. He's not a high security risk. But there's a big question there about whether or not Boris Johnson and this government actually thinks about it in light of the European referendum and in light of the Russia report, in light of, a, you know, a whole con- the whole context that we're currently in. Um, so that's where it, it becomes an important political moment.
3: Can I just mention something I found out about peerages, which shocked me to my core? I've just been reading a very long biography of Nigel Farage for work. and. <laughs> Uh, it turns out that when the Tories were trying to convince the Brexit Party to drop out completely and not contest, you know, Labour-held seats, um, they were trying to bribe the Brexit Party with peerages. And one of the people that was promised a peerage in the event that the Brexit Party dropped out was former Loaded editor Martin Daubney. Oh, my
4: God. Yeah, it's really, Which really did dodgy. make me want
3: to abolish the House of Lords <laughs> immediately. <laughs> yeah,
4: like, definitely. Like, it's worse than Lebedev. I mean, the thi- the. the- the amazing thing about Lebedev is he's, not, he's got this whole conversation going on about whether or not he should be a peer. Has he proved his worth as a peer? No. Since he was uh, made a peer, he's v- not voted at all, and he's spoken in the House of Lords once, since I, 2020.
3: I suppose there's no Russian interference in British politics there, because he <laughs> can't be asked. That's what you want, just like lazy Russians. Um, Roz, is the Tories' dependence on Russian money cutting through with the public like could they tap an oligarch for cash in the near future or is that just a toxic issue now
2: well it certainly would be toxic but I'm not sure that would necessarily stop Johnson I mean I was looking through the Q4 2021 donations earlier today because I knew you were, you know might ask me about this and um you know, there's there's some Russians there. Um, so clearly, at that point, it, it wasn't it wasn't a problem. One of them, uh, former wife of a former associate Putin, uh, donated sixty six thousand pounds, which is not a small amount. But you should also bear in mind that there are many many ways of influencing British politics, which do not amount amount to party donations. And then, of course, there are the donations via the companies route, which are also possible. Mm. It is entirely possible that. A, an oligarch can have an association with a with a company, which would then donate money, but the link would not be that clear. And in that case, we have to depend on the Great British press to try and uncover that kind of that kind of attempted concealment. But more widely, you know, we talk about Lebedev, and we talk about his possible influence. We don't actually know whether he's donated any money to the Conservative Party. As far as we know, he hasn't, but. He is the owner of the Evening Standard. And that is actually a far, far more powerful position than an enormous donation to the Conservative Party. He has actively enabled and promoted Boris Johnson's career. And this is what happens in states that are slowly becoming corrupted, which I worry that we are, that people like this become influential because they are able to buy influence. So it's not just going to be about donations. And no-one has called. Have you heard, has anybody here heard a call for Lebedev to give up the evening, stand, evening, evening standard? I haven't. No-one has even suggested it. Not at all. Because, you know, there are no... There, there's only the KGB link, which, as James cleverly alleges, is only a matter of Lebedev's father. So what does it matter? You it, work
3: for one Soviet intelligence agency <laughs> and exactly. they're wholly against you.
2: Yeah. And, you know, don't, don't just look at the donations.
3: Um, Arthur, Starmer seems to be offering a sort of critically supportive, supportively critical stance, as he did over, over COVID. Do you think that is the right thing to do for both party and country? Could Labour be more oppositional? Because, I mean, obviously, there has been, there's been a lot of criticism along with, you know, the support.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think on, on the one hand, uh, clearly Starmer wanted to, right from the get-go when he was uh, appointed leader... Um, he wanted to show that you could be a Labour supporter and be a patriot, which you know it seems bizarre that we're, that, that would be a new thing. But you know, under Corbyn, that was that was contestable. Um, so it's very understandable why he would, uh, in the context of something like this, where you know, yes, we don't have active military engagements, but we, you know, there's a lot of military support has gone in, and it's it's about a big national security question. Very understandable why he's, in that sense, been quite quite supportive. I mean, I think he's tried to skewer uh, the Prime Minister a bit on the kind of, you know, the oligarch stuff that Ros was just talking about. Um, I I feel perhaps he's pulled a few punches where, you know, because the depth, as Ros is saying, you've got the Lebedev story, you've got the fact that Dominic Raab, the chairman of his constituency party, was another very uh, wealthy oligarch type. And, you know, there's a lot of these stories, and I, I wonder whether he could go a bit further. But I also wonder whether... These are the sorts of stories that are very interesting to all of us and all of you because you know we're all in the, this one room because we're a bit over-bothered by politics. Maybe a lot of people think, well, all political donors are corrupt, you know, big deal. I don't know.
3: This is why we're not playing the Albert Hall. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a better crowd. There's just, just not enough political nerds out there. <laughs> um, Minnie, as we were saying earlier, like, you know, the government rarely loses out by attacking refugees and migrants politically. Now it seems like everybody is, is angry with them, and the Home Office really seems on the back foot. Ros mentioned the appointment of Richard Harrington to the new post of Minister for Refugees. Um, now, I don't know how long-term that post will be. What do you, what do you make of that move to make that, to give that own Minister and anything you know about him?
4: Yeah, I mean I'm always really skeptical about these kind of these postings. Um it's not the first time they've had a minister for refugees. He was actually the minister for refugees back when the Syrian crisis um was ongoing and he was very influential in that that moment of getting 20,000 refugees from Syria to come to the UK over 5 years. And I actually remember doing a bit of work with him back then and he he's not the sharpest, but he is um he is a softer touch than the current government. So I think it's an interesting move to appoint him. I think it indicates that they want to... They they accept that the public want a softer touch on Ukraine, particularly and probably Afghanistan too. Um, I think the thing that is most interesting about this appointment is it is not within the Home Office. He is within the Department for Leveling Up and Communities, which also suggests that thing about wanting to move away from Priti Patel's kind of toxic narrative for this issue and to, to make it seem like they're thinking about a community-led approach and integration, but it also you know, backs up what I said earlier about the approach that they're currently taking, putting a lot of pressure on local authorities. So I think, I think it generally says that they want to be seen as softer and kinder, but realistically, it, he won't be around for very long in that position, and it will come and go.
3: Arthur, how else do you see the crisis in Ukraine and the, and the ostracisation of Russia changing British politics going forward? One
0: of the, the big factors here is the, the way that Britain behaves towards Europe. And I know we're going to talk a bit more about Europe later, but actually, uh, you know, Liz Truss last week went to Brussels to attend a meeting of the Foreign Affairs Council of the European Union. Now, uh, interestingly, when she tweeted about it, she, she somehow forgot that she'd been at the Foreign Affairs Council. She was just in Brussels at meetings, you know. But um, I, I assume that even Liz Truss was aware which meeting she was in at the time. Uh, actually, actually, I say I assume, like, you can't be sure, can you? Anyway, but I, I, probably some of her team were aware. Um, so I think that, to try to be serious for a second, what's happening is that you, you've got this much more concerted European and in that context, we're including Britain happily. European approach to how we relate to Russia and to Ukraine, and actually that that it just forces this government, which has tried to avoid the idea that they need to talk to Europe about anything except Brexit, um, to accept that ultimately, you know, the big issues in our lives are actually there, on in in the continent that we're part of.
3: Well, that does bring us very nicely. Two, the European Union, our old friends. <laughs> um, many countries like Finland and Sweden are now seriously thinking about NATO membership, which they weren't before. The EU is looking more united than it has for a long time. Ironic, um, really Putin has just spent the last 20 years undermining these international institutions. Has he just strengthened them overnight?
4: I mean, nothing unites people like a common enemy. And... You know that's very clear now that there something horrendous has happened, and that there's also repercussions across Europe. Um, some of those countries have land borders with Russia; they'll be thinking about defensive strategies. They've also got a NATO-like partnership with the Baltic states, who are also going to be concerned about what Putin's next move is. So, uh, actually, the other thing to say as well is that um nato membership and ukraine will be hot election topics in probably a lot of countries after that and polls specifically in finland sweden and norway have shown high public um support for joining nato so i think it's really hard to tell whether this will be a permanent state or whether it's a kind of reaction to the moment and obviously nato joining nato will take a long time so Mm. I guess we have to just kind of play it by ear and see how, what the situation is like in, in six months or so.
3: Yeah, it does seem bizarre that some people are still sort of citing NATO expansion as a sort of reason slash excuse. And he is just basically like a pitch man for NATO expansion at the moment. Mm-hmm. Might as well just like have a fucking table where the place where you can sign up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Roz, Ukraine and Georgia have both applied for EU membership. Obviously, um, you know, there's some issues with that. Um, Now, in the past, expansion has caused the EU various troubles. Do you think this will happen? I mean, it's obviously not going to happen soon, but could you see it happening?
2: I can see it happening perhaps if Vladimir Putin is no longer in charge of Russia and a different regime takes over, yeah. Mm. I mean, the timeline for EU membership is very, very long. Do not underestimate how long it takes a country to join the European Union. I mean, Serbia... Uh, And I think uh, Montenegro are due to join in 2025, although Serbia is a bit iffy because the president has been, frankly, a bit friendly towards Putin and has not been reforming very fast. So that might not happen. You may remember some accusations, that, uh, some claims that Turkey was going to join the EU. (laughs) I mean... The, the phrase was going to, you know, was in a pipeline where it might have happened in 20 years. Um, it, it, it is a long, slow process because in order to join the EU, unless they introduce some sort of fast track, which it's hard to imagine, you have to meet all kinds of criteria for the rule of law and or anti-corruption and all kinds of things, which generally it takes quite a long time for EU candidates to meet. And then any country in the EU can veto you, which is what happened to North Macedonia and it wanted to join, and Bulgaria basically said, no, we don't believe in you as a state. Just, you know, bugger off, you can't join. So it's a very long timeline. I mean, I think what you will see is if, in the most optimistic scenario, if, this all, if the war in Ukraine ends as well as we can hope, Ukraine obviously will be in a terrible state, and you will see an enormous amount of goodwill and funds from the EU to build it up back up again. So, and then there are also you know, issues with Russia trying to pick off places like Bosnia and Serbia on the edge, of the which the EU will also be worried about. So that is in play too.
3: Um, Ian, how effective have the EU sanctions been so far? Well, I mean, they've
1: been extremely effective when it comes to foreign reserves. I, don't wanna, I mean, I know that every time I say foreign reserves, everyone wants to fucking dig a hole and die in it. But it has to be discussed. <laughs> you know, because there, there isn't much, I mean, in terms of the business stuff, it, it's not quite as, as impactful. The foreign reserves fucking matter. I mean, that's when you're taking away their euros. It was that, I mean, the dollar is what really, really matters. Sterling matters a teeny amount. The euros do matter. Okay, and doing that absolutely punished the hell out of Putin. And what it did was it, you know, in cooperation with the US, is it framed the dynamic of the conflict. And that is, it is a mutual suffocation strategy. It's like, who gives in first? Is it Ukraine? You'll notice Ukraine can stop a Russian advance, can slow a Russian advance. There's been no sign that it can reverse a Russian advance. Is it Ukraine that gives in first, or is it the Russian economy that gives in first?
3: That's the core dynamic, and that was created by Washington and the
1: EU working together.
3: Um, And are you surprised that the EU appears to be so willing to take the sort of economic pain of sanctions, you know, on, on, on their side, in terms of, you know, energy, for example?
1: Yeah, well, the thing is, that hasn't kicked in yet. I mean, that's really yesterday. You know, yesterday was the first time that we started talking about serious pain for Europe. And I don't know, man. Like, you feel like this moment is so much as being decided on an almost second-by-second basis at the moment. Because the decisions that are being made will worsen the material conditions of Europe and of this country. They absolutely will. And yet, at the same time, kind of, in terms of the battle of ideas, dreadful fucking phrase, but pertinent here... Something is fundamentally altering, that Europe, instead of getting embroiled in this how much, you know, do, how much edge do we give to Orban, to these nativists who basically just want to fucking annihilate our values, suddenly you see something different. People that support Putin, and every single one of those nativists always in the end got into bed with Putin and that whole way of doing things. People that support him, we know what they want now, which is the annihilation of our values. We know that that is what they're going for, and will that idea hold when the material conditions get worse? And that applies here as well, by the way. Because I think it's going to get worse here too. It's going to get pulverizingly fucking worse over the course of this year and especially into the autumn. And yet, there is a big change, right? Like over the course of when we've been doing this podcast, what was Europe as a word? It was just kind of trade, tedium, bureaucracy, this niggling, annoying thing that was impacting British ingenuity. That was what we had to fight against. But what is Europe now? Right after these few weeks, what does it mean? Mm. Now it's the thing that people die in the fucking dirt for. Now, that is a fundamental change.
3: Well, another thing that Putin's been doing these last 20 years has been fueling right-wing populism around the world, not just in Europe. Um, But he's lost the previously sympathetic sort of governments in in Poland and Hungary. Meanwhile, in France, Macron's opponents in the French elections on the kind of far right and the far left... um, are sort of being hammered by their previous Putin apologism. is excruciating seeing them try and walk this back. So do you see this as sort of maybe having a kind of domino effect within European politics that these associations... I think that's perhaps also one of the weirdest things about the last two weeks is all these people that you've seen for years, and we're talking about the Tory party taking donations, we're talking about you know, the hard left making excuses for Putin... Uh, in 2014 we're talking about the far right um aligning itself with putin and in america you know people like steve bannon and trump is there a sort of toxification coming on where actually this sort of sudden like oh not not me mate is just not going to work or is that is that too optimistic that people are going to like hold this, this shit against them. This
2: is for me or... No, for, for Ian.
3: Oh, sorry. Oh, Jesus, is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not listening. <laughs> I was
2: sort of stopped paying attention.
3: I mean, I thought
1: I was looking at you like, oh, yeah, that's it, uh, but I kind of just tuned out. Um, so I don't... So it's I, the face, isn't it? You... It's the fa- I just, I know how to... It's been years. Like, um, I mean, I don't see it much with Farage here. I do see it... I mean, you look at the way that Italy is responding to Salvini. Salvini made the mistake of going to Poland the other day as, you know, oh, you know oh, I really care about Ukraine now. And he got his ass handed to him right. out there. Very humiliating. Extremely enjoyable. And um, and I think you can see that you, as you sort of say, you can see it in France. I'm not from the American guys I follow. I, my understanding is that that isn't quite happening in the U.S. And that it's a more complex picture in the U.S. Hopefully, that shift is happening. It's starting to permeate people's consciousness that there is something really malevolent and dangerous about that method of thought, and that that method of thought is connected by the umbilical cord to the regime in the Kremlin.
3: Um, and Arthur, obviously, Merkel was not... Was that the question you asked me, by the way? That was the question. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Hold on. You can stay. Um, Arthur, Merkel was not one of those people. Now Germany has sort of suspended, stroke cancelled Nord Stream 2. He's lending military assistance for the first time in, in modern history. Again, is this a kind of emergency move? Or does this mean a substantive change in terms of the way that, say, Germany sees its place in Europe?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think this is, this is transformational. and I, Because I think the other thing which goes with the, the things you've mentioned is Germany doubling its military budget. Um, and, you know, for reasons we're all aware of, that's a sensitive topic in Not Germany. Not always
3: great, historically.
0: <laughs> no. Um, but... Everyone would have heard that endless debate about, you know, you're supposed to have 2% of your GDP on your military budget, and that was a thing that the Americans, a sort of stick the Americans used to beat a lot of European countries with. Now, of course, Germany's economy is huge. 2% of Germany's economy is a vast sum of money. And so uh, you are now going to have a huge German defence budget. Now... Back in the, the Cold War era, Germany did have a big defence budget, but it also had national service. And that's expensive, we've just got millions of people who are going to go in uniform and do, do a few weeks in the army and so on. But they're not going to do that. I don't think there's any chance of them bringing back uh, national service. So you're going to have, you know, the, Europe's biggest economy by some margin uh, suddenly having enormous sums of money to spend on defence. And that that is going to change all kinds of things. The balance of of strategic power in Europe, because historically you always had the German economy as the sort of the economic anchor, and then the UK and France as the big sort of defence actors, and, and that was a, I'm not going to say it's a balance, but it was a, that was how it worked. Uh, now, obviously, Britain has, has sort of wandered off onto its own little thing. France is still there, but Germany is now going to become, by a long
3: way, the biggest uh, military actor in Europe as well. Do you think questions should be asked now about I mean, they're not the most urgent questions about why the world didn't do more to censure Putin in 2014. Because it's like, what in 2014 was not a small thing. And yet, I don't... Rec- I mean, maybe there were some kind of sanctions, but obviously nothing approaching this. Is there a... I don't want to be coulda, woulda, shoulda, but it, is, was there something more that could have been done then that might have deterred what is happening now?
0: Definitely. I, I think... Well, for a start, uh, you see, the, the huge difference now is that the Ukrainian military is really effective and capable, as we've all seen, and, you know, a massive Russian army is, isn't managing to achieve what they wanted to achieve. In 2014, um, with, with uh, no disrespect to Ukraine, it was pretty hopeless. And particularly, uh, Crimea was a very, very uh, odd situation, but the, those eastern provinces, which are now, you know, fake independent countries... Uh, they quite quickly, the Ukrainians got pushed back and then only very slowly in the, in the following years that they sort of managed to get a kind of, a bit like World War One, a sort of line of, of, of um, you know, of sort of no more movement. And between 2014 and now, you know, a lot of Western support has gone in. I'm not saying that's the only thing. You know, Ukraine itself, of course, has built itself up. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians who served... In those eastern parts of Ukraine, who are who are back in civilian life now, and that's quite interesting. That gives us a think. it Stops us, you know, assuming that Ukraine would sort of collapse even if Russia, you know, got further in. So I think to try to answer your question, um, we should not have allowed Ukraine to sort of fall as far as it did up up mm. up until 2014. And of course, at the point of the Maidan Revolution in 2014, Ukraine's government was this very corrupt pro-Russian government, and maybe
3: again. You know, it's hard to
0: counteract that, but we probably should have done more.
3: Um, Roz, how do you see this changing the future of Europe?
2: I think the biggest impact in the short term will be the sheer number of refugees. And that actually gives the EU more leverage than it might have expected to have over countries like Poland and Hungary in particular, which have been pushing against the EU and pushing against the rule of law. There are going to be, they may already be a million, but certainly hundreds of thousands already of refugees in Poland. And in the area, the question of where they go, how to share the burden, will be an incredibly urgent one for the EU. And that, as I say, does give it a bit of leverage over Orban, particularly, as we were saying, as he now looks, since he's been so far in bed with Putin, he, he now looks potentially weakened on, on, his, on his home turf, and so, so does the Polish administration. So there, that, will, that will be the immediate thing, I think, that will transform Europe, and could actually be a unifying force. It will be uh, very interesting to see, particularly what, what Germany, how Germany responds to this, because Germany, of course, took a lot of people from Syria, with the whole Wirtschaften uh, das thing, when, when Merkel said that she would let people in, and she did. Uh, which surprised a lot of people. But whether that can happen again and what tensions will emerge, that will be the story of the next two or three months. I'm not quite sure. I would like to see a bit more... I would like to see a bit, a few changes in the French election. The polls I've seen most recently have seen been no change for Le Pen's support or Zemmour's, Eric Zemmour's support, who is also funded by Putin and very close to him. And yet there hasn't really been yet any change in their support. And with the far left as well in, the France, in, in France being quite close to Russia, that is worrying. And let's hope that Macron can turn that around.
3: Um, Minnie, finally, for the first time the EU is using this power that it, it's had but decided never to use to ask states to grant asylum for three years. Um, I mean, obviously, we we'll talk about sort of double standards there, but certainly what happened in when, when uh, Merkel... Welcome Syrian refugees. Was there was this big um, right wing backlash? It, it, you know the AfD kind of playing that, and obviously racists the world over were kind of you know circulating um, dodgy stories. Do you fear that that would happen here? Or to be blunt, we've had for many years refugees have often been have generally been from outside Europe and generally not white. And do you think that actually what this... It sort of separates out the refugee issue from racism in a very clear way.
4: Yeah, I mean, as you said, they've used this power for the first time. They've had it since the Bosnia crisis, I think, and it's not been used before, and there have been numerous refugee crises in that time that they could have and should have used it for. I think the thing about this moment, and it kind of backs up what Roz was just saying, is that... What they've done here is basically prove to themselves that the common European asylum system is actually failing Mm. and they've had to apply these rules that they've never used before. Um, And the thing about refugee movement that is really important to remember, and you only really kind of... Think about this. If you're working with people every single day, is okay. We're in a crisis right now. We've done a big thing right now, but for them, this will continue for months and months and months. Right? There's an initial movement. There is always going to be a second movement, particularly as those first few countries become overwhelmed or too full or whatever the narrative is around what's happening there, and. Over the next six, months, six to 12 months, there will be significant kind of population changes in lots of different countries as refugees kind of emerge into, into different places and start their own communities. That is the time at which every country needs to really pay attention to what is happening on a community level and what the narratives are. because you know fine race is an issue but there are also a lot of racist stereotypes about eastern europeans and that you know shows itself in lots of different ways and that's a high risk here and it's a high risk in lots of other countries so the eu is really going to have to reckon with how it treats race and asylum and how it treats those two things simultaneously in a massive crisis in a neighboring country so it's a big moment
3: well, thanks, Minnie. Finally, under normal circumstances, we'd be directing you to a merchandise stall in the foyer, um, but that doesn't feel uh, very appropriate at the moment. So you can see a number on the screens where you can text the word support. <laughs> I'm saying to people who are very short sighted, you can text the word support <laughs> to send ten pounds to the Disasters Emergency Committee uh, Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal on seven zero one five zero. Ian, what are the ways in which... I mean, just in terms of... I mean, it's not about us. We've definitely seen... I'm not sure if you saw that NPR Twitter thread. It was about how self-care during the Ukraine crisis... <laughs> felt like, NPR listeners who are just like, but what, what, about, what about me? My sadness. Um, so it's not about that, but what, what do you think... What we've, and we talked about it in many situations, after election defeats, referendum defeats so forth Um, about like what about how action actually has this sort of turns this feeling of kind of despair and impotence into something what what do you think the opportunity is here like how do you sort of manage those feelings? maybe turn it into something useful I mean to me I'm not going to pretend that I've been
1: dealing with this very well because I haven't been dealing with it healthily at all like we started on the thing that I basically have just had fucking day after day after day of just looking at my phone and getting quite fucking upset about it and not really able to disconnect in a way that I kind of was able to disconnect during Brexit, really. I mean, I kind of was, you know, there was a point where you're like, okay, now fuck that and I want to eat pizza and watch The Terminator. It's really quite hard for me to do that recently. I do think that there's a certain level of kind of satisfaction um, and I don't know how to put it, really. If you, there's a whole world out there you can't fucking control. But there are things that you can have a real, tangible impact on here. And at the moment, I mean, I've spent most of my life writing about fucking like immigration, drugs, prison reform. And you just push lobbying, and it does nothing against the fucking war. Just achieves nothing. Yeah. Sorry, Minnie, I, you've achieved much more. But for me, it's been a pretty fucking thankless task. Um, right now, you can fucking push them. You can push the Home Office. Mm. Those every single inch it gives is because of public outrage. You can push McDonald's. You can push BP and Shell. You have any idea how much fucking money BP and Shell lost? In that, like, a lot of money. These people right now can be pushed. So, honestly, the way to satisfy yourself, I think, is that there are achievable goals. You know, and sometimes the achievable goal is just go give shit to Netflix on social media. That could be a force for good in the world. And at the moment, it has been. Over the last mm. few weeks, it has been. To do that can make a difference. And so, I think, really, if, if you're struggling with it, that seems like a pretty good avenue to pursue. Um,
3: Roz, what about you?
2: I think you can, you can show the kind of country that you want this country to be and which so many of us were distraught to see after Brexit and in the years afterwards and in watching what Johnson has done as leader. And you can do that by... And I know there are very, very few refugees, Ukrainian refugees in Britain at the moment, but there will be more. And when they arrive making sure that they have somewhere to go. Because it's not just a question of letting people in. It's not just a question of the visas. Once they're here, they need places to live. Their kids need schools to go to. They need to have all the support that they need in in order to try and get jobs, language help. There will be so much that these guys need. And that many of us, not all of us, because some of us won't be able to afford to help, but we may be able to give a bit in time, but there will be a lot that we can do in different ways. And this is coming at a very, very difficult time. I would never underestimate the, the difficulty of welcoming what will hopefully be hundreds of thousands of people during a cost-of-living crisis and enormous energy bills. It will be very hard, but we can still demonstrate the kind of country that we want to be in, the kind of welcome that we want to give these people and the kind of help that we want to give them once they are here Mm -hmm. and to help them become, if they want to, citizens of this country. And if they don't wish to, that's okay too, but make sure that they have a decent standard of living and a, a decent way of life. And that's what we can do, and that's what I hope we will do.
3: Uh, minnie what, what what do you recommend or what have you found yeah I apart mean, from I... working at the joint
4: Council for Welfare, <laughs> yeah obviously i mean that's incredibly hard and like ian said i don't think i've coped particularly well with this you know it's in- incredibly distressing and horrible to see people struggling and and to feel like that i think the thing that i always come back to is people and i always try and remind myself of this on a regular basis. Like what is the most important thing? What is the point of everything? And it is community and people and the people around us. And so when I'm trying to find like moments of how on earth can I help? I I always say this to other campaigners too, like don't go so big that you're like, how do I fix the entire political situation? Because you're just never going to be able to do that. But think about what you can do in your community to provide support and help and safety to, to anyone in your local community. And if you just look around at where you live and where your neighbors are, there will be 10 different things that you can get involved in and it really does kind of start at home. And if you're improving your local community, you're improving everything. So just start there.
3: Um, Arthur. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I could be the the next person to say that. I don't think I've dealt with this terribly well. In fact, um, the the morning that, that Russia invaded, it just happened. I was walking through central London, and I was walking through Belgravia, which of course is you know oligarch central, beautiful buildings, no doubt all uh, you know owned by offshore trusts, amazing cars parked everywhere, and I I have almost never in my life felt so much rage and despair at a single moment. Because you really, it's sort of the physical manifestation of what this country has done. And clearly, I, I, you know, I wasn't standing outside the house of a particular person who I know about, but it's just this sort of, the, what, what it tells us. It's a place that, that no normal person ever lives, and almost every single property is owned in some obscure way to a, avoid tax and to steal money from other people somewhere in the world. Um, and, and I think that there, there, there is some sort of little insight there, which is that the way that Britain has particularly engaged in this conflict, and I'm not talking about in the last three weeks, you know, and we, we've done a good job, we've supplied weapons, we've done other things, but the way that we've engaged in enabling uh, for decades is by being the world leader in, in money laundering, you know, in helping kleptocrats steal money, and and create a nice life for themselves whilst impoverishing their people. And there are organisations, brilliant organisations in this country, that, that work against that. Um, the OCCRP, Transparency International, uh, Bureau of Investigative Journalism, others. You know, lots of you will probably be aware. But I, I think, um, for me, that thinking about how uh, we can make Britain less. In a, in a very particular way that is uniquely British. You know, there aren't other countries that do this. We, other countries don't have these weird offshore territories that they use for the laundromat, or certainly not at the scale that we do. If we collectively can, can change that, you know, we can write to MPs, we can, we can help these organisations, we can change the way that, that people talk about this stuff, uh, that has to be worth doing in the long term.
3: Well, thank you very much. That is the end of the show. Uh, thank you to Ian Dunt, uh, Debutante, Minnie Rahman. Roz Taylor. And other debutante, Arthur Snell. Because you've done a show before, but you've been. Um, Thanks also to uh, our two panellists who aren't here tonight Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu. And to the backroom team that keep it all running Andrew, Alex, Yelena, Martin, Jacob, Jacob, and Jade. And to everybody here, everybody watching and listening at home, um, and uh, we've had a great time.
2: Hello, it's producer Andrew Harrison here. That was Oh God, What Now? Live in London and we hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to hear the audience questions from the end of the show, you can support us on Patreon and get it as the extra bit on this week's edition. Just search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast to find out more, sign up and hear the rest of the show. Thanks for listening.